are gonna pick up immediately where we left off last week. We have to. We're on the eve of battle. Gideon has just discovered that he's won, which is so cool. It's the eve of battle, right? Normally on the eve of battle, you don't know that you've won. But in this case, Gideon knows. And in verse 15, the story picks up that when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies. He put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all the men with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Father, we just... Ask for your teaching now. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to instruct us by your word and in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 3311 tells us the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. I love that verse. Because regardless of the counsel of humanity, be it our own government, be it the United Nations, or the useless nations, as I like to call it, be it you know, any other form or entity or counsel of man, it is the counsel of the Lord that stands forever. It's unshakable. Acts 20, verse 27, this is why Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The counsel of the Lord stands. And yet the counsel of the Lord can be so weird. The battle plans, right? We've talked already about some strange battle plans. Back in Joshua, the battle plan for Jericho is weird. And this battle plan of Gideon is to me even more strange. Here's what we're gonna do, guys. <laughs> I've been working on this all night long. We're gonna divide our already tiny company of 300 into three different groups. And then we're gonna arm each group with trumpets, pottery, and torches. And then get ready to shout for Yahweh and for Gideon. That's it. Who comes up with battle plans like these? Who thinks up such operational plans that are so bizarre? And the answer is very simple, not Gideon. No, this is of the Lord. It's only Yahweh who thinks like this. This strategy is perceptibly inspired. It's God's counsel. It's his plans. And his plans are always extraordinary. Now, sometimes to us, we think of extraordinary as something big and bold and beautiful. Sometimes extraordinary is just weird. Hard to comprehend, not the way we would do it, but his ways are not our ways. And our thoughts are not his thoughts. And so when God comes up with something, trust him. He's the same one whose plan it was, was to put on flesh and live among us and die. Greatest battle plan in eternity and the weirdest part is the death would take place in our place. It's bizarre. In fact, the Bible refers to that as scandalous. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, indeed, Jews asked for signs and Greeks searched for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. That is a weird message. That is a strange counsel. Christ crucified. Paul says to the Jews, a stumbling block, a scandal on. It's a scandal. And to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's the counsel we're talking about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's your battle plan. There's the counsel of the Lord that stands forever. So weird plans, absolutely. But let's back up a little bit. Remember what just had taken place. Gideon and his servant uh, Pura snuck out to a Midianite outpost middle of the night because they're still shaking in their boots. 300 against 135,000. How is this even gonna be done? How is this possible, Lord? And the Lord says, go listen. Go to the camp. Check it out. So they crawl out there. They're hiding out behind a tent. All of a sudden, they begin to hear two enemy soldiers talking about Israel's victory. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. He said, behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Davis says God's word comes through the oddest channel. But this shouldn't surprise us since he also made a murderous high priest his prophet. John 11, verse 50, when Caiaphas said, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And John says, when Caiaphas said that, it was prophetic. He also made mocking priests and theologians his evangelists. Matthew 15, 31, as they said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. That's the gospel. He made a pagan governor his most stellar witness. John 19, 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Scandalous. In fact, there were many Jews who read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And so the testimony stands. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. So the Lord made it clear in the story before us, by the dream and the interpretation of enemy foot soldiers that Gideon, that loaf of barley, was about to be victorious. He was gonna upend the camp of Midian. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just posted the watch, 
and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. And when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, that is of Midian, and the army fled as far as Bet-Shittah towards Zerara, as far as the edge of Abel, Mehalat, and Tabat. It worked. This crazy plan worked. I've read this story, I don't know, a hundred times. And I have tried to reason it out in my head what really took place that night, how this came down, how it worked. Okay, so think with me. It's nighttime, that helps. You know, people are more freaked out at night. And even among Arabs today, there is a tendency to be fearful in the night. So we can assume maybe that they were already unnerved being out there in the valley at night. Midianites were superstitious. And, and so... The surprise advance of Gideon and his men with startling sound and light, maybe it caught them off guard. You know, you've got smashing clay pitchers and lights all of a sudden with torches coming from three different sides and they're shouting and they're blowing shofars. Maybe it just freaked everybody out just long enough for them to turn and run and in the darkness, they're stabbing each other, they're cutting each other up. It was disorientation and disarray in the camp of Midian. This is the reason that I've come to that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You can try to make it a logical thing, but you gotta remember it is still 300 against 135,000. There are so many there. This puny battalion with the equivalent of ceramics, flashlights, and kazoos <laughs> up against this massive encamped army of fierce, well-trained, as we talked about last week, camel-riding opponents. This cannot work unless it's supernatural. It cannot work unless it's supernatural. It cannot work unless it's supernatural. I'm not talking about Gideon. I'm talking about you. And I'm talking about me. This whole faith thing cannot work unless it's supernatural. And if you think you're still riding on some sense of knowledge, of intelligence, of wisdom of your own that has brought about your faith to this point in your life, you are sorely misguided. It cannot work unless it's supernatural. And this battle of, of Gideon and his men is crazy simple. It's impossible by all human measure. It cannot work unless it's supernatural. That's the point. That's what God is doing. The same is true as we see with Gideon and his torches and his pitchers and his blowing as it is with these earthen vessels. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter four. 2 Corinthians chapter four. We're gonna spend just a few minutes there this morning. 2 Corinthians 4. I'm gonna pick it up in verse five. 2 Corinthians, by the way, if you're having trouble finding it, it's right after 1 Corinthians. <laughs> right before Galatians. <laughs> 
2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter four, verse five, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. My friends, that is our outrageous battle plan. That's the counsel of God for the church of this generation of the last 2,000 years, preach Jesus from earthen vessels. And that can't be done unless it's done supernaturally. Preach Jesus from earthen vessels. Keep going, verse seven. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Three things to note about God's confounding plan for Gideon. And you can keep in 2 Corinthians 4 or maybe put a finger there and you can jump back and forth if you need to look at Judges chapter 7 again. But I want you to note three things about this crazy, weird battle plan that is confounding to the enemy that is of Gideon and Israel. And we start by considering broken containers. Broken containers. Gideon and his men went into battle with a striking picture of what Paul's writing about. A stunning picture of these earthenware vessels that we are made of. And, and by the way, it's one of the things I love about the Bible is illustrations in actual history that become instruction for practical living. That we read the stories of the Hebrew scriptures, not just to tickle our fancy or to hear a good story, but because there is example in them. There is illustration for how we do this in real life, here and now. Historical illustrations for practical life in the here and now. Like Chuck Missler once said, what was in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. And so you need both. It's why we've been intent here in this fellowship at going through the Hebrew scriptures. We need the Hebrew scriptures to comprehend the New Testament scriptures as well. It's the whole counsel of the word of God. Now, someone might say, okay, wait a minute. And I've had this conversation numerous times. You're saying, for example, God's battle plans for Gideon were intended as a picture for the church today? Yes, absolutely. This was not an afterthought. What Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter four is not Paul going, okay, how can I apply this? How can I come? We had this game we used to play when I was a youth pastor. We called it the application game. And, and, and the, the seniors in my youth group and I, it was, they, they were always amazed. I, I would try to come up with application out of anything. Someone would sneeze in the middle of worship. I'd stop and try to make application, you know? And it just became this fun game. That's not what's happening here. Paul is not sitting back and thinking, all right, all right, okay, I need to talk about, you know, how we're weak, but he is strong. How can I, ooh, Gideon, yeah, that's a good story. No, no, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is sharing what I believe God intended when he said, Gideon, torches, pitchers, and trumpets. I need, this, I need you to do it this way. Why, Lord? Well, because there's no way you can win unless it's supernatural. And what God knew that Gideon would not know is this was going to be taught later. 
And this was going to be applied and understood in a much more vivid and immediate way later on. I am absolutely certain of this. And by the way, just as for Gideon and Israel, this supernatural intervention was to the glory of God. So in our lives today, the supernatural work of God in us is to his glory. Because if we can come up with a great strategy of evangelism to change this world, guess who gets the credit? We do. Oh, we had this, this big blowout crusade and everybody showed up and we were well organized and we were tight and we were sharp and the teaching was good and we brought in some of the best worship leading and man, we made it happen. Glory to us. When it's impossible, God gets the glory. And if you feel like in your life, and I'm way getting ahead of myself, but I've just been thinking about this all week long. If you feel like in your life, I'm a useless vessel, I can't be used by God, guess what? You are in the prime position for a supernatural work of the Lord. To actually change someone else's life through you. I know. We look in the mirror, we go, through me? Yeah. But, but I'm nothing. Exactly. That's the beauty of it. We're just earthenware vessels. Broken containers, actually. Think about it. Think about it. They, they had torches to light up the night hidden under these clay pitchers. And in the same way, we in these earthenware vessels, we have a treasure. Paul already said what it was in verse six. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the torch. The torch that we bear. Crazy as this plan was, think about what would have happened if Gideon's army had not revealed their torches. What would have happened if they just kept the torches under the pitchers for fear, shaking in their boots, thinking this is impossible, it's not gonna work, I gotta keep the torch where it is. What would have happened? I'll tell you what, eventually the torch would have gone out. No more light. And that's always how it goes. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. Matthew 5, 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the universe. Oh, no, that's not what he said. It gives light to all who are in the great world. That's not what he said. He said it gives light to all who are in the house. Can, can you give light in your house? Can you bear the light of the glory in your house? Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't resist the light of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Don't keep it hidden. Just be honest about who you are. I'm an earthen vessel. But inside, there's a treasure. And it is a bright light. And the way this works, by the way, is exactly opposite of what we would normally think. And I gotta tell you, this was kind of a paradigm shift for me, what we're about to get into here. This is opposite of how we normally would think it would work. Light of the world, me? Okay, there are times I barely make it through the day. 
There are times when I'm grumpy and no one really would want to be around me and it's just not a good day and I'm supposed to be the light of the world. Exactly. And here's, here's the shift for Pastor Rick. To let the light shine out, the vessels must be broken. Now maybe that's easy for you. That is not easy for me. I don't like brokenness. I never have. In fact, I am a strong believer, and even with this little paradigm shift that we'll get to, I'm a strong believer in the fact that that was me, that is not me now. I was broken, I was sinful, I was a wreck, and then Jesus came and changed all that, and he saved me, and he is sanctifying me, and he calls me holy, and I am a royal priesthood. And, and I think that's important because a lot of times in the church we, we spend a lot of time wallowing in brokenness when we need to be talking about the strength of the Lord that is within us and has changed us to make a big difference in this world. That's good. March on with that. But I gotta recognize, no, no. If the light is really gonna shine out, the vessel's gotta be broken. The pitcher has to be smashed. The brokenness idea, it's a popular motif in contemporary Christian culture, contemporary Christian worship music, and it's always bugged me because, again, I feel like it's wallowing in weakness rather than in the strength of the Lord. But here's the thing. Isaiah 42, verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. So I'm trying to put this together. He's not gonna break me, and yet we're all into this brokenness thing, and so I reject brokenness, and yet I come to the story of Gideon, and then I read about the earthenware vessels of Paul, and I think, hang on a second, those pitches were broken so the light could shine. How does this work, Lord? Listen, a bruised reed he will not break. That is such good news. If you're bruised, if you are hurting, if you are wounded, if life is hard right now, he's not gonna snap you in half. He is a tender-hearted God. He is kind, he is gentle, he is a healer. He's not gonna break you. However, that does not mean that God will not break pride. And it does not mean God will not chip away at the hard shell of a hardened heart. It doesn't mean that there's an awful lot of arrogance still on Rick that needs to be broken off so the light can shine. Even the arrogance of saying, I got this, Lord. Take a break this week. I'll take care of it. That stuff needs to be broken off. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 3.12 Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, pick up in verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, Paul says but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. I like that one because I'm often perplexed, but not despairing, not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, struck down, by the way, it's euphemistic for killed, but not destroyed. 
Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Please understand this is not a pathetic woe is me plea of a victim. That is a wrong thinking kind of Christianity. What Paul's describing here is just the reality. I'm a broken vessel. Praise the Lord that I am earthenware, that I am, as the Bible says, I'm just dust. He knows I'm fragile. He knows I'm like the grass of the field. But the only way to get the light out is for the vessel, listen, for the vessel to be broken from its original use. And I think that's key. Broken from its original use. Gideon's clay pitchers were not made for war. That was not the purpose in the first place. These pitchers were made for water or wine, not war. They're not weapons, they're dishware. How many of you, if your house was being invaded, would run to the kitchen? I mean, if you're going for a knife, I understand, but, but I gotta get a plate. I gotta get a pitcher. Why? I don't know. Just come on. We can fight with these. You know, the landscape of Israel is actually littered with broken pieces of pottery. It's fascinating, especially when you go to the archaeological sites. Just look down. You'll find pottery. If you're, if you're there and you're walking through the site and you're walking along the path, there's pottery everywhere. You can pick it up and go, <laughs> 2,000 years old, and most of it is. It's a great little souvenir. And it's good cleanup for the Israelis, so you know you can do that. At many of these sites, we find these, these potsherds who, who, that are as common as seashells at Bowman's Bay. Broken pitchers. Because that's what they had and that was their, those were their earthenware vessels. But now some of those same pitchers taken into war are smashed, are struck down for a greater purpose. Why? Smashed so the light would shine. So the light would suddenly become bright. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, and these things by that he means wickedness, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. But we need to be broken of original use. That's what I mean by that. What we originally thought we were about, what we originally were living for, needs to be broken so that the real life can emerge, so that the light of the gospel can be clearly seen. We carry about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. What does that mean? That means that these often afflicted, sometimes perplexed, occasionally persecuted, even struck down bodies are here to reveal a greater treasure. We are the earthen vessels. He's the treasure. And it's the light. Now, now stay with me on this. Second thing to note, we become bright conveyors. Bright conveyors. Broken containers, bright conveyors. Of what? Of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We are conveyors now. 
of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, preaching Jesus, and the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now, I need to go back and correct something that we talked about back in uh, Judges chapter six. So, so turn there real quickly, Judges chapter six, and, and note something here. In Judges 6, 34, it tells us that the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and the Aviezrites were called together to follow him. The spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The correction I need to make came upon, and we, we did talk about this particular word, it's lobsaw. He came upon Gideon, lobsaw. Lobsaw means to put on a garment. And so at the time when we were in Judges 6, not long ago, I previously said Gideon was clothed with the Holy Spirit. I love the picture. He, it's like putting on a garment, and he was clothed with the Holy Spirit before he even put out the first fleece. But that's not exactly right. And you need to get this. A more accurate reading is the Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord put on Gideon, wore Gideon-like clothing. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. What is that? That is the Lord clothing himself with you. Romans 8, 10, if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The broken vessel, the body, is dying, but the spirit's alive. Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Man, the question is, who is wearing who here? Why put on Jesus? I wear the Holy Spirit. No, he put you on. He is clothed with you. You think the incarnation of Jesus is amazing? How about the incarnational life that you are invited to live in Jesus? We have this treasure in, in earthen vessels. We all get the earthenware vessels. I understand that, how fragile and breakable it is. But inside Inside is this amazing treasure, the word and the spirit. And I, as an earthen vessel, become a bright conveyor of the very spirit of the living God. I convey the best news that the world has ever heard or will ever hear, the news of the gospel and all the cracks and the wounds and the fissures in my life, all the broken pieces, listen, they convey that light even brighter if I'm willing to let it shine. Why don't I let it shine? Pride. Hold that thought. But we have this treasure. Don't forget that. Don't forget the treasure that is within you. Let's go a bit further with Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 Look at verse 11. He says, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested, that is seen, witnessed, experienced in our mortal flesh. We live that he might be seen. 
That's the point of life in Christ. So death works in us, but life in you. Having the same spirit of faith, verse 13, according to what is spoken, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Wait a minute, who raised Jesus? Paul says the spirit who raised Jesus, technically speaking, and if you want to do a study on this, and we have before, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved in the raising of Jesus. Because the Bible's very clear, Jesus raised himself. And the Bible's very clear, the Father raised the Son from the dead. And the Bible is absolutely clear that the Holy Spirit had a hand in it, all three did. But here Paul is referring to the Spirit, and Romans 8 verse 11 he says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Third point. How and when will we be raised? Third point, there's a blowing call. There's a blowing call, and it will be at the sound of the shofar. Go back to Judges chapter 7, verse 20. Stay with me as we piece all this together. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, each stood in his place around the camp. They didn't even charge. They didn't run in. They didn't rush forward. They just stood there holding the torches and blowing the shofars. Are you with me? Shofar. You got to use it every time or it's just, it's a waste. They stood in their place and all the army, that's the enemy army, all the army ran crying out as they fled. Whoa! And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Bet-Shetan, Zerara, and as far as Abel, Mehalat, and Tabat. They go running crazy. Listen, in these broken, in these broken containers, these broken vessels, yet bright conveyors, we're gonna hear the blowing sound. As yet in these earthenware vessels, we're gonna hear that trumpet sound and we're gonna hear it before the war goes down. They're just standing in their place. As the sound of the trumpet is blown and heard, the battle has not yet happened. Now, the enemy starts to take itself apart immediately, but you're gonna see through the rest of the chapter and on into chapter eight, Gideon and his men have their work cut out for them. They are gonna chase these guys down. There will be fighting following this, but before the war takes place, the trumpet sounds. That is what the Bible promises us. That in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And I hope there's not a single person in here going, yeah, yeah, here's the run of the rapture verses. I hope you never get tired of these. That the Lord will descend himself with a shout from heaven, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. My friends, that is before the war. Before the battle happens, the trumpet will sound, and we will be caught up. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 tells us. The Bible is clear about this. Titus 2.13, that's why the rapture is referred to as the blessed hope. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Or as John wrote in Revelation 4.1, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And in the book of Revelation, after these things is the war. It's called the wrath of God, the tribulation. But we will know victory in Jesus when the trumpet sounds. The moment we hear the trumpet blown. Meanwhile, trumpet sounds, we go up, and on earth, there will be instant disarray, confusion, disorientation. And among some, I think many, there is going to be an immediate realization that they missed the trumpet call. And that sobers me. In fact, that should break our hearts. And I don't apologize for doing this. I don't apologize for raising among all of us family and friends who today, if the trumpet sounds, would not go, but would be here and would be facing a horrible time. We have to deal with that. We have to keep that reality before us. It's what I've called many times over the years the divine tension between my hope to go home and my heartache at those who wouldn't if the trumpet sounded today. I have, I've become convinced uh, over many, many years now of doing ministry, of life, I've become convinced that hurts and pains and offenses that are inflicted on me, and, and I'm, not, I'm not being a martyr here, but just hear me out on this. Hurts and offenses that are inflicted on me by others, and I think we can all relate to this. You've been hurt by others. You've been hurt by church people. You've been hurt by non-church people. Ever, people hurt people, right? I've become convinced that it's because they really don't know what they're doing. When someone hurts you, they really don't know what they're doing. Oh no, you weren't there. You should have seen the fire in her eyes. You should have seen the look on his face. You should have heard the words coming out of their mouth. I get it, I get it. They don't know what they were doing. They really don't know. Even in rebellion, if people fully comprehended, fully understood what they were doing, it would tenderize a hardened heart. Jesus knew this. Jesus prayed from Calvary, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's remarkable compassion. An amazing understanding. Paul referred to this inadvertent ignorance as a veil. It's a veil, folks. When people do these things, they're looking through a veil. They don't see what they're doing. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. But until that veil is removed, 2 Corinthians 4.4, going back there, 
the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's all this got to do with each other? Do you understand? This is why the bright conveyance of broken vessels is so powerful to win a victory. We don't convey the brightness of the gospel through our own strength and pride and arrogance. No one would hear it. We convey the bright light of the gospel in our brokenness, in our weakness, in these earthenware vessels. And the Bible gives us next a very practical example. Read on in Judges chapter seven, verse 23. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. So now everybody's all in. The battle's taking place. Gideon, verse 24, sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Bet-Barah. Bet-Barah, by the way, that's also called Bet-Abara. That's the place of the crossing where they crossed before Jericho, crossed the Jordan River, where Jesus, John the Baptist, where Jesus did their baptizing. It's where we baptize when we go to Israel, right there at Bet-Abara. And so he says, go, they say, go all the way down there and take the waters and stand fast at the Jordan. Verse 25, they captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, which makes sense. While they pursued Midian. Now, note this, Oreb and Zeb, these are princes or captains of the army. These are not the kings of Midian. You'll find out about them in the next chapter. But these are two captains that they captured. They killed them. And it says they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. That's what happens when you try to get ahead. <laughs> then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this thing you have done to us? Not calling us when you went out to fight against Midian. And they contended with him vigorously. Okay, wait a minute. Who's got time for this? We are in the middle of war here, guys. And they're all upset because they weren't invited. They didn't get to be there early on to break pitchers and hold torches and blow shofars. They contended with him vigorously. The Bible says contended in Hebrew is yeribun. And it's they strove, they quarreled. It can even mean they attacked. I don't think they were attacking Gideon, but in this context, they are arguing and quarreling with them. They're heated up. There's fire in the eyes, and they're coming at Gideon, who's just doing what God told him to do. They contended with him, and it says vigorously, which is hoska, which can mean violently, forcefully. This was not, hey, why didn't you call us? This is, what's wrong with you? How dare you? I can't believe you. And they are really going at Gideon. A few weeks ago, and it may have been, I think, on a Wednesday night, I mentioned a very curious indication of the last days. And it's something many prophecy students just right now are beginning to recognize and, and talk about. I've seen it from now multiple sources. Matthew 24, verse 10, which says, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate 
one another. The thing is, the phrase fall away there, that's not the word. The word that's used there is, get this, scandalizo. Scandalized. Many will be scandalized. You know what scandalizo means? Outraged. It means shocked. It means offended. Many will be offended. (laughs) Is there anything that describes culture right now better? Everybody and their mother is offended. Sorry, moms. Everybody's offended. I mean, the world we live in, it's crazy to me how angry and offended and contentious people are. It just doesn't make sense. People are outraged. And it's like people are looking for a reason to be offended. Just looking for a reason to be upset. Go ahead, go ahead, make my day. Come on, bring it. You want to get all up in my face? I'll get all up in your face. It's just, and by the way, social media is not helping. We live in a culture, in a world where people will just come at you, especially if you're just trying to do the right thing. Now, you might say with that, yeah, but thankfully that wouldn't happen in the church. The outrage in this story is not coming from the camp of the enemy or the nations outside. It's coming from within Israel. The problem, suddenly we have this beautiful picture of the pitchers and the light and the, and the trumpets were like <laughs> rolling along and all of a sudden we have infighting. All of a sudden the people of Ephraim are offended that Gideon didn't involve them early on in the battle. The, by the way, the, the Ephraimites, they're gonna take offense at Jephthah in chapter 12 for the same thing. So they're easily offended if they're not invited into the war. Listen, insecurity from jealousy or pride among God's people, I don't want you to miss this, insecurity or jealousy, or insecurity from jealousy or pride among God's people always distracts from the real battle at hand. When we contend with one another, when we are angry with one another, when we come at one another, when we're jealous of one another, prideful toward one another, or insecure around each other, it always distracts us from the real battle at hand. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We have no business as Christians in this church or any church harboring jealousy, resentment, or territoriality. I see that all the time. Among pastors, unfortunately. This is a great challenge. In fact, this is the great challenge, I think, of broken vessels. And it's that the human inclination is never let them see you broken. Never let them see you weak. Gotta keep up the veneer. Well, look at what Gideon does, verse two. He said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Aviezer? That's his family, Aviezer. God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. <laughs> what was I able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. 
This is divine diplomacy on the part of Gideon. It is the perfect answer. It settles the situation immediately. It calms his brothers to where they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And the battle can now continue. What Gideon says, let me see if I can break this down a little bit. He's saying, we may have begun the harvest, you know, the gleaning. We may have begun the, 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 the harvest, that is the, how, how he puts it, the vintage of Avietzer. We may have started this thing, but you guys gleaned the harvest. Look at what you did. We did nothing in comparison. We just held up some torches and blew some trumpets. You caught Oreb and Zaib. You're, you're chasing down Midian. We could not do this without you. You're the valuable one. Do you see what he's saying? <laughs> and it's great because, listen, this is during a testosterone-fueled ongoing battle. I don't know if you realize this, but, but men, and yes, there are still differences between men and women. Men, when they get all amped up in, in just watch an NFL game. <laughs> you know, watch sports. Men get amped up. And it's so funny to me, it cracks me up. And I, I like football, I, I do. Cracks me up when, when someone tackles someone else and they stand up and it's like they just conquered Midian. They're like, yeah, oh, yeah, look at me, I'm awesome. No, you just knocked a guy down. Come on, it's testosterone, bro. These guys are chasing down the army. Put yourself there. They are amped up. They're in fighting mode and now they're coming at Gideon. How dare you? And Gideon turns the whole thing around. It's hot, they're tired, got the enemy on the run, and Ephraim decides to be offended. Careful, careful. Gideon might go all broken pitcher, bright torch on you here. And actually he does. See, this is Gideon's answer, and this principle is vital to broken vessels and bright conveyors who are waiting for the blowing call of the trumpet, especially in this easily offended in times era of social media. Listen, you might wanna jot this down. This is a verse worth memorizing and asking the Lord to supernaturally work in your life. Proverbs 15, one, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. Man, when someone contends with me, I can feel my blood pressure rising. When someone comes at me with a harsh word, my gander gets up, my ire gets on fire, and I'm ready to go. That's the natural man. I want to hit back. Let me say something very clearly, brothers and sisters. We are not called to counterpunch. That is not our MO as followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm just gonna be totally blunt here. And, and, and I'll even say, having voted for Donald Trump, I will be blunt. There it is, it's out there. Oh, I can't believe, yeah, I did. <laughs> and there were so many Republicans in that round who were finally thankful that we had a guy that fought back. Yes, he'll stand up to them, yes. He'll argue back with them, yes. He will yell at them, yes. He'll fight the fight. That's not our fight. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Harsh words stirs up anger. Now, 
lest you think I'm getting political here, I'm really not trying to, but the example is just so glaring. And the problem is I've watched many Christians turn into counterpunchers in the last four to six years. And it needs to stop because that's not our calling. I think what Jesus said was we are to turn the other cheek. Because that's what Gideon does here. Gideon takes the downside. Gideon backs down and says, whoa, 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 you guys are doing much better than we ever did. I mean, yeah, look at what you guys have accomplished. You guys are awesome. And, and, and it completely settles it. Fighting the good fight of the faith does not mean we fight back in self-defense. No, what did Paul say? He's so clear. We're afflicted, not crushed, perplexed, not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but we fight back. No, struck down, but not destroyed. See, that's the Jesus way. Faith should inform our politics absolutely but politics should not inform our faith. And my brothers and sisters, I, I ask you this question to process with me here. What if Jesus fought back? What if Jesus counterpunched at Calvary? He could have. Remember in the garden, he said, I could call 12 legions of angels. I, I, I could do this right now and take care of this whole thing. But what does he do instead? Matthew 26, 52, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You counterpunch, you're gonna be hit again. It's the way it works. John 18, verse 11, same quote, but from a slightly different perspective, Jesus said, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And Peter got it. Peter, who would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. It's kind of like Gideon in this situation. Gideon was just doing what God told him to do. He didn't do anything wrong, but they're coming at him anyway. What do you do in that situation? While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And you know what? Even if your gentle answer does not turn away wrath, in that moment, you will never be more like Jesus than when you answer with gentleness, than when you answer a broken vessel, allowing the light of the gospel and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. This is why I'm saying it's supernatural, because I don't do this naturally. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bring your response. Gideon's in the midst of the fight, yet he's gentle and he's meek in response to contentious brothers. He's nothing more than a poor, barley bread, broken vessel. That's Gideon. But you know what else he was? Clothing for the Holy Spirit. How are we going to reach such a contentious, easily offended rebellious, angry world. 
How are we going to do it? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. As for you and me, again, I remind you, we're broken vessels. That's what we are. Broken vessels of faith who are also bright conveyors of the good news and the Holy Spirit as we patiently await the blowing of the trumpet unto our victory. The brokenness, God chipping away all that stuff off of me, let him see it. Let him see it. Oh, I know you. You used to be this way. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I did. Yeah. I'm still working on that. In fact, better said, God's still chipping away at that. But you know what? I've got Jesus in me. I've got Jesus. And even though others may do me wrong, I can confidently say in this world, forgive them, Father. They really don't know what they're doing. That's the counsel of the Lord. 